I invite you to take your Bibles with me and turn again to Genesis 35, as was read just a moment ago, Genesis chapter number 35. One of the great tools for living life in the 21st century is the GPS. And once upon a time, it was a standalone device, but now, of course, its navigation is built into our vehicles and it's fully integrated into our phones. Somehow, the global positioning system triangulates with satellites that are up in outer space to to specifically pinpoint our, our exact location, and the software then guides us turn by turn for where we need to go. Initially, when the GPS devices and the maps programs were first invented, they first came out, the the navigation was paired with a woman's voice. And the geniuses in Silicon Valley determined that perhaps we would all listen better if it was a woman's voice telling us where to go. But in time, why is that funny? That's... (laughs) I'm just stating facts here, people. Just the facts, right? But in time, there were other options with other voices, like, like the, the man with a British accent, because British men sound smarter than normal men, evidently. And However, here, here's where I'm going with this. Things have now improved to the point where I can have my maps program, my GPS and my maps program on my phone, navigating me with no voice at all. When it's time to make a turn, my phone will send a signal to my watch and the haptic feedback there, it, it vibrates a bit so that I can be alerted to, to the, the fact that it's time to make a turn. I can quickly glance at the screen. I can make my turn as if I knew what I was doing all along, right? And nobody is the wiser. I know where I'm going. How brilliant is that? Well, one of the, the convenient features of the GPS, at least my Apple Maps and my, my CarPlay is, is the home button. And you're all familiar with that single touch, that single home button where it's pre-programmed to take us home from wherever we are. In Genesis 35, Jacob didn't have a GPS to guide him, but he heard the voice of God. And he obeyed the voice of God when God told him to turn and to go home. If you remember, it was back in Genesis 28 that Jacob vowed to return home. It was in Genesis 31 that God reminded Jacob of his vow to turn home. However, it's not until now in Genesis 35, 30 years after Jacob first made his vow, that he's finally and fully on his way home to Bethel or Bethel a place where he could renew his relationship with God again. And so from Genesis 35, I prepared a message titled, titled simply, Homeward Bound. Let's uh, go to the Lord in prayer, shall we? God, I thank you so much for your holy word. And Lord, I thank you for the moment just now, perhaps the favorite moment of my week, in which we can open the holy scriptures, we can read and study We can learn. You can instruct us. And this morning, Lord, from the life of of Jacob, who was going home, he was homeward bound to renew his relationship with you after 30 years uh, beyond Bethel. I pray, God, that you would go before us now in these moments, 
and teach us and change us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thirty years have now passed since Jacob ran away from home in Genesis 27 after Esau threatened to kill him for stealing his birthright and blessing. You remember that Jacob spent 20 years serving his uncle Laban. He spent 10 more years living in the wicked, ungodly city of Shechem where horrific things took place in Genesis 34. And you might not know it, but Shechem, the place of Genesis 34, and Bethel, or Bethel, the place of Genesis 35, those two cities are only 30 miles apart. A short distance in one sense, but in the other sense, it might as well have been a million miles away from Bethel, for Jacob and his family lived independent of God. But now in chapter 35, verse number 1, Then God said to Jacob, this is the voice of God speaking to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there, and make an altar there to God who appeared to you when you fled from the face of Esau, your brother. It was sometime after the immorality and the brutality of chapter 34 that God told Jacob to arise and go. And there's a sense of urgency in these commands or these imperatives. No more procrastinating, Jacob. You must fully and finally fulfill your vow now. You must return to the place where you had that meaningful encounter with God, where you wrestled with God, to to Bethel, the place where where God blessed you and where you built an altar and worshipped him. It's time to go home, Jacob. Verse number two, and Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, put away the foreign gods that are among you, purify yourself and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel. I would offer you this, number one, if you're taking notes, Jacob was prompt in his obedience. He was prompt. There was no hesitation. There was no reservation. Jacob simply said, let's go. And that's good. However, Jacob responded the same way back in chapter 31. Look at it with me. Turn back a page, maybe two, to chapter 31. Look at verse number three. Chapter 31, verse three. Then the Lord said to Jacob, return to the land of your fathers and to your family, and I will be with you. Chapter 31, verse three. Now look at chapter 31, verse 13. I am the God of Bethel. Bethel where you anointed the pillar and where you made a vow to me, now arise, get out of this land and return to the land of your family. So Jacob obeyed promptly at this point as well, but he got distracted along the way. He made a 10-year pit stop in Shechem. He took a detour that delayed his journey. And of course, we learned last week what happened in Shechem in chapter 34. So folks, I would submit to you that prompt obedience is important. But persistent obedience is also important. In fact, you might modify Roman numeral number one to read prompt and persistent obedience. That is, we must follow through. We must complete the commands of God in our repentance or in our obedience. We must keep going until we reach the place of progress that God has intended for us. What's that, you ask? Technically, Shechem was part of the promised land, but it wasn't Bethel. And for the New Testament Christian, obedience is complete conformity to the image of Jesus Christ. It's not partial. It's not halfway or close enough obedience. It's prompt and it's persistent. And this time now, and back in chapter 35, 
Jacob proved to be more obedient than he was back in chapter 31. He followed through in the manner because, number two, he was proactive in his obedience. He was proactive. Instead of being passive, as we witnessed in in the last chapter when Jacob let his sons deal with the violence against Dinah, Jacob was personally proactive by taking the initiative and leading his family in righteousness. He told the entire caravan, in verse number two, we just read it, put away the foreign gods. Now let's stop there and think about that for a moment. What foreign gods did they have to put away? Perhaps it was the foreign gods that Rachel stole from her father Laban in chapter 31, verse 19, when Jacob and, his, and all his people made their escape from Laban. But, but weren't those foreign gods, those idols, discarded in chapter 31? We have no record of that. Remember, Leah hid them. She sat on them. She lied about harboring and hiding them. It could have been those foreign gods, or could it be that Jacob and his family collected additional other foreign gods from the spoils of Shechem after the massacre at the end of chapter 34? You see, folks, worshiping the gods of the nations around them was always a problem for the Hebrew people. In fact, there was hardly a generation that went by, a generation of God's people, when they didn't err in that false idol worship. You say, well, at least we don't have that problem today, right? Oh, but we, we do. We erect idols, not little statues that we bow down to, but anything that we erect to take our attention and our devotion away from God. And for some of us, idolatry might take the shape of career success or personal recreation, or continuing education, or a ball team, or a hobby, or even our spouse or our children. And of course, there's nothing inherently wrong with those things, don't misunderstand, but they can become a point of idolatry when they compete for the priority and the primacy of God in our lives. And and that's why God commanded us, have no other gods before me. It's why Jesus taught us that we cannot serve two masters. And so Jacob's commitment to obeying God and going to Bethel included putting away the idols and also purifying themselves. Jacob was purified, number three, in his obedience. Purified, and I would point you again to verse number two. And Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, put away the foreign gods that are among you. Purify yourselves and change your garments. Look at verse number four. So they gave Jacob all the foreign gods which were in their hands and the earrings which were in their ears, and Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree which was by Shechem. Now, remember something. At this point, God has not yet issued the Levitical Levitical laws of ritual cleansings and purifications. Those things wouldn't be established for generations to come in the days of Moses, the giving of the law. There is upwards of 400 years between Jacob and Moses. But nonetheless, even early on at this time, Jacob intuitively knew that if he was going to worship God in the right way, he had to purge himself and purify himself of the filth. 
And the symbolic gesture here of changing the clothes in verse 2, burying the idols in verse number 4. Folks, when we purpose to pursue the Lord, to follow the Lord, to serve the Lord, to worship the Lord, we wash our hands, we cleanse our hearts, we purge our lives of anything that is unworthy of him. That's what Jacob did here at this point. Now, I want to draw your attention back to the end of verse 3. Before we proceed, the the end of verse 3, Jacob identified God as... If you're looking at verse 3, the one who answered me in the day of my distress and has been with me in the way which I have gone. So as we trace the the life experience of Jacob, as we're tracing the the lives of, of all of these patriarchs, we might lament that at times it seems that God is silent and distant from his people. It's been 10 years Uh, dark years in Shechem. They were marked by horrific events. However, I I think it's important for us to note here that God was not silent. It was Jacob who was distant. When Jacob cried out to God, God answered. And even when Jacob strayed far away, God was still with him. The end of verse number three. So I I would offer you this, number four. Jacob was preserved even in his disobedience. He was prompt and persistent in obedience. He was proactive in obedience. He was purified in his obedience. But he was preserved in his disobedience. And folks, you may feel like you're lost in life. You may feel lonely in life. You may feel abandoned in life because you think that God is a million miles away and maybe your walk with God and your worship with God has gone awry and it's been so long since you've heard the voice of God. Let me encourage you with a truth, a Bible truth, that God is always with you. And he will answer your cry even today. When you seek the Lord and you hear his voice, he will invite you to return to Bethel. That's how we concluded last Sunday morning as well. You respond in obedience as Jacob did and be renewed in your fellowship with God. The the statement, Roman numeral number four there in your notes, is a summary, I I believe, of all of the Jacob narratives that we've studied in the last many weeks. And and Jacob was in repeated distress in various places, and in each instant, God's presence and promises preserved Jacob. And I would submit that Roman numeral number four is also a statement of our own testimonies. As followers of Christ, we find ourselves in repeated distress, most often of our own folly, consequence of our own self-inflicted uh, sin, yet, yet God is faithful. And when there are days of fear and when there are days of failure, know that like Jacob, God is always with us. He will hold us fast. And to make my case... In case you're not hearing me, look at verse number five. Verse number five tells us the people of the land did not pursue Jacob because of the terror of God upon the cities around them. It wasn't the terror of Jacob's sons or his army. It was the terror of God. Verse number five, and they journeyed and the terror of God was upon the cities that were all around them and they did not pursue, that is those in the cities around them did not pursue the sons of Jacob. 
Folks, that is 100% a God thing in verse number 5. Jacob had nothing to do with his own survival, his own protection, his own prosperity. God guarded him and kept him on the way to Bethel. I wonder how many times that God has protected us and preserved us and we don't even know it. He's with us along the way and we don't even know it. So finally, verse number 6. Jacob comes to Bethel, verse 6. So Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, he and all the people who were with him. And he built an altar there and called the place El Bethel because there God appeared to him when he fled from the face of his brother. Now, back in chapter 28, verse 19, Jacob called the place Bethel, Bethel, house of God. Here, if you noticed it, in verse number 7, he calls it El Bethel, God of the house of God. And Jacob has come full circle back to that place, but it's more than a place. It's a person. It's God in that place. And there, number five, Jacob was prepared to worship in obedience. Now, Jacob built an altar in Shechem back in chapter 33, verse 20. That was good, but it was in the wrong place. Well, it was technically in the promised land, but it was not where Jacob ultimately needed to be. It was Shechem. It wasn't Bethel. And at last, Jacob is back in Bethel, and he's prepared an altar as God has instructed him in verse number one. He's prepared to worship. Now, the remainder of the chapter records the deaths of three people. And I might comment on this. I, I think it's a reminder that even when one is in the right place in Bethel, doing the right thing, living for God, worshiping God, and fellowship with God, there, there are times of grief. Our lives are still temporary. Death will Occur. So look at verse number eight. Deborah, Rebecca's nurse, dies. Verse eight. Now Deborah, Rebecca's nurse, died. She was buried below Bethel under the terebinth tree. So the name of it was called Alan Bakuth. I don't. Alan Bakuth means oak of weeping. They're referencing that terebinth tree. I, I don't know what it means, if it means anything. But back in verse four. Jacob buried his family's idols in the same way under a terebinth tree. And maybe you want to tease that out. There's maybe no significance there. It's, but it, it caught my attention as I read the text. In verse number 19, Rachel died. In verse 19, let me pick up in verse 16. Let me see verse 16. Then they journeyed from Bethel. And when there was but a little distance to go to Ephrath, Rachel labored in childbirth. She had hard labor. It came to pass. She was in hard labor. And the midwife said to her, do not fear. You will have the son also. So it was as her soul was departing, for she died. She called the, his name Ben-Onai, but his father called him Benjamin. So Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. And Jacob set a pillar on her grave, which is the pillar of Rachel's grave to this day. And then if we continue, verse 27, um, Isaac, Jacob's father, died. Verse 27, then Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre, or Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had dwelt. Now the days of Isaac were 180 years, so Isaac breathed his last and died, and was gathered to his people, being old and full of days, and his sons Esau and Jacob buried 
him. There along the way as well in verses 23 and following, we have the list of the 12 sons of Jacob. We know them as the 12 tribes of Israel. But, but what I want to highlight as the high point of this chapter this morning is back in verses 9 through 12. And that's where we'll, we'll conclude this morning. In verses 9 through 12, I think the high point of this account, look at verse 9. Then God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Padan Aram and blessed him. And God said to him, so, so uh, Jacob is here at Bethel. He, God blesses him and says, your name is Jacob. Your name shall not be called Jacob anymore, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. Also God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply a nation and a company of nations shall proceed from you and kings shall come from your body. The land which I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I give to you and to your descendants after you. I give this land. And so upon Jacob's obedience in returning to Bethel, God appeared to Jacob, renamed Jacob as Israel. But if you're astute this morning, you say, but didn't God already do that back in chapter 32, verse 28? He did. Why did God rename Jacob Israel again? And I think it's because people are prone to forget. And perhaps that Jacob didn't fully adopt or embrace that name. And I think because of Jacob's faint memory, God had to repeat his promises to Jacob. And that's number six. Jacob was given promises upon his obedience. He was given promises upon his obedience. And these were the very same promises that God had made to his grandfather Abraham, to his father Isaac. In verse 11, don't put your things away. I know the notes are complete, but verse 11, God identified himself to Jacob as God Almighty. That is the Hebrew El Shaddai. When did God first reveal himself as El Shaddai? It was to grandfather Abraham in Genesis 17, verse 1. God promised Abraham that he would be the father of many nations. Of course, Sarah laughed. So God said, is anything too hard for the Lord? You see, God is almighty, almighty God. El Shaddai. And in verse 12 then, 11 and 12, God is restating to to Jacob, I am the God of your grandfather Abraham. I am El Shaddai, almighty God. And, and, And because of that omnipotence, I can promise you the impossible. You will have great nations that come from you. And this land is yours, deeded to you, by that almighty God. It's nothing short of a, of a restatement of the Abrahamic covenant. Verse 13, then God went up from him and the place where he talked with him. So Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he talked with him, a pillar of stone, and poured a drink offering on it, poured oil on it, and Jacob called the name of the place where God spoke with him, Bethel. Now, I want to leave with you uh, a, a final thought, a, a summary from Genesis 35. And I would present it like this. In our youth, in our youth, we want to spread our wings. And we want to explore and discover and travel the world. We want to see new places. We want to try new things. We want new experiences to excite us and novel experiments to entertain us. And many times, it's the new technology and the gadgets that make that all possible, right? The the GPS-type devices. But 
in our maturity, that is, as we age, we're reminded of home. And when we return home, we're renewed in a special way for the lessons that we were taught at home, perhaps long, long ago, they have fuller meaning, fuller significance to us at that time because of our life experience. In Jacob's going back to Bethel after 30 years, he had gained a lifetime of experience, good and bad. <laughs> he had a deeper appreciation of his life experience. In fact, one commentator has written this. I've copied it there for you on the back of your notes. He says, these incidents teach us that the most precious favors of heaven often come to us not in the form of blessings or promises entirely new, but in the repetition or revival of those things which we have already experienced in times past. And so, on the other hand, it may be that the most acceptable manner in which we can serve God will be not by engaging in something unattempted before, something new or novel, some experiment, but rather by doing our first works. Remember when the Apostle John was given his revelation of Christ in the book of Revelation, the, the charge to the church is you've left your first love and you're, you're no longer doing your first works. But by doing our first works, by reminding ourselves of our covenant vows and seeking anew that spiritual communion, which is the life of our souls. This was written not by the, the President George Bush, but by Bible commentator George Bush. The spiritual communion, which is the life of our souls. Folks, take a moment to think back to the point of your conversion. When you first heard the gospel, when you first understood the gospel, when you first embraced the gospel by faith alone, trusting in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sin and your everlasting life. Think of the, the early days of discovering the truths of the scripture. Think of the times when you enjoyed the fellowship of God's people and the corporate worship of, of God. Think back to those days. Maybe you need to return there. You need to go home to Bethel to renew again the fellowship with God, the relationship with God. Now is the time. And may your obedience be prompt and persistent. May your obedience be proactive as you purify yourself and prepare yourself to commune with God. For God has preserved you in spite of the previous disobedience, in spite of how far you've traveled and how far you've wandered and how hard you've become. God is wanting and waiting to renew his promises to you. You see, folks, what took place here in Genesis 35 is what we might understand as revival. As Jacob's back in Bethel, he recognizes the God of Bethel, and he rehearses again the promises of the Abrahamic covenant to him. There's an old Methodist hymn that you may be familiar with, testifies this way, I've wandered far away from God. Now I'm coming home. The paths of sin too long I've trod. Lord, I'm coming home. I've wasted many precious years. Now I'm coming home. I now repent 
with bitter tears, Lord, I'm coming home. I'm tired of sin and straying, Lord. Now I'm coming home. I'll trust thy love, believe thy word, Lord, I'm coming home. My soul is sick, my heart is sore. Now I'm coming home. My strength renew, my hope restore. Lord, I'm coming home. And of course, the chorus, coming home nevermore to roam. Open wide thine arms of love. Which is, I think, the invitation this morning. Knowing that God stands always ready to welcome you home to a place of renewed fellowship and communion with him where he will restate his blessed promises to us. And no matter where you've traveled, no matter how much time has passed, he has held you fast in the palm of his hands. Let's pray. God above, I pray this morning on behalf of the hearers, those before me, those who are listening to this broadcast or this recording, Lord, they may find themselves in a far and distant land. It's been so long, they have faint memory of your promises. I pray, God, that you would draw them to yourself. Thank you for holding us fast when our faith falters and fails, when we're so frail and feeble. God, thank you for holding us fast and drawing us to yourself. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.